Hello and welcome to the Stock Podcast. I'm Nate Abercrombie, the host of the only investing podcast that gives everyone the chance to hear public company CEOs and CFOs describe their business and provide the investment case for their company. In this episode, the Stock Podcast is really excited to bring you an interview with Nathan Craker. He's the president and CEO of Spark Energy, ticker symbol SPKE. Spark Energy is an independent retail energy services company that was founded in 1999. Spark has two operating segments, retail electricity and retail natural gas. Spark essentially purchases electricity and natural gas through physical and financial transactions with suppliers and deliver that natural gas and electricity to residential and commercial consumers. We're going to shake things up just a little bit this week. After the interview's over, keep listening and, well, you can just hear my thoughts. It's a fascinating interview and I hope you enjoy it. So here we go. Nathan Craker with Spark Energy, thank you so very much for joining the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, it's good to have you. And um, I'm I'm interested in your background. You've been with Spark for quite some time and I'd be very curious to learn just a little bit more about how you came up to the industry and you know, just anything you'd like to share about uh, your time and experience with Spark Energy. Sure, Nate. Um, I've been at Spark for a little over eight years. I've been in the industry for almost 15 years. Uh, My background prior to that was in public accounting, started with Arthur Anderson out of college, then made a made a move to Ernst & Young in their transactions practice here in Houston. That was my first introduction to power generation and retail energy was with Ernst & Young. I was working on an acquisition that Direct Energy was doing uh, when they bought their first combined cycle plant here in, in ERCOT in 2004. Working as a consultant, got on that deal, worked on it for about a week, and then the deal died. Then started on my next project up in Philadelphia for two months, and two months of travel was wearing on me. And I got a call from the executive I had been working for at Direct asking if I wanted to come over and head up the finance function for their wholesale business. I said no about and my preconceived notion was I did not want to work for a utility. I had a negative view of what it was like to work for a utility. So I just said no. And after three or four weeks, he wore me down and I decided to go for an interview fell in love with the opportunity, took the opportunity, and four days after starting at Direct Energy, the power plant deal that I had worked on as a consultant was back on. So I spent my first several months uh, buying that power plant, integrating that power plant, and then setting up a finance function for their uh, wholesale business. That was in 2004. Uh, Since then, I've kind of gone back and forth between the wholesale side of the business and the retail side of the business back both at Direct and, and then at Spark. So it's been a really good ride, certainly not boring, and it's a very exciting industry. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, why did you have the negative view of uh, working for a utility? You know, I think growing up and anybody that I knew or, or had parents or family members that worked in the utility was unionized and had this mindset that, look, you start work at 8.15, you get a 13 minute break at 1027, you got 40 minutes for lunch and you're off at 320. That just did not sound appealing to me at all. I mean, I've always loved my jobs, like to pour myself into them. And uh, if that's what it was like to work for a utility, I wanted no part of it. I see. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I can assure you, we don't quit at 320 at Spark Energy. So (laughs) uh, it hasn't been that at all. 
Yeah. So could you tell me a little bit about Spark and especially the history? And I'm, I am very curious to um, also hear a little bit about the the founder and and the relationship there. Sure. Um, Spark was founded in 1999 by a gentleman named Keith Maxwell. Keith's background prior to that was on wholesale energy trading. We've been doing that with several different companies prior to founding Spark in 99. And 99 was when they, they first started by buying gas in the Gulf Coast, moving it up on pipelines up to the Midwest and selling it to commercial, to commercial customers uh, and optimizing the transportation assets. Uh, 2001, when the electricity markets opened up in Texas, they saw an opportunity to get into that market. Uh, from 2001 to 2014, the business really grew by entering one or two new states every year, kind of as markets deregulated, they just expanded their footprint. Uh, it was definitely a build and operate philosophy. Keith is a classic entrepreneur, has half a dozen different businesses at any point in time, uh, and really didn't have a history of M&A prior to 2014. So that's the background. The business that we operate today, that we talk about today, really took its form in 14 after taking the company public. Took it public in 14, got that public currency, saw an opportunity for consolidation uh, in the space. And from 14 to today, we've really grown largely through M&A and consolidating in the space. And so the, the, the corporate structure, the ownership structure of Spark is maybe a, a little bit different for many investors out there. Could you just describe how the ownership of, of Spark is structured? Sure. It looks complicated uh, on the surface. It's, uh, it's called an up-sea structure. Um, it's modeled after the up-reet structure, which had some popularity in the real estate industry. There's actually quite a few energy companies that have gone public through an upsea structure. Planes is one of the large ones. I believe Shake Shack, although not energy, it's one of the more famous upsea structures out there today. Um, but what it is, we were always an LLC. And when you have a single, single member owning the LLC, that's the most tax advantaged way for him to own it. Uh, when you take that company public, we wanted to figure out what's the most tax advantage structure uh, both for our majority shareholder as well as for our new public shareholders. So we created a new corporation, Spark Energy Inc., took 100% of Spark Energy Inc. public, took the proceeds from that IPO, and bought an interest in the LLC, the operating LLC. And uh, the way we are operating today, Spark Energy Inc. owns 38% of the LLC, and Keith Maxwell, our founder and chairman, owns the other 62% of the LLC. Both owners still get benefit on the tax side. Uh, Mr. Maxwell avoids the double taxation on his share of the earnings, and the public investors get the benefit of a step up in the basis for all the membership interests that they've acquired both at the time of the IPO as well as any subsequent membership interests they've acquired in the LLC since 2014. So both sides get the benefit of the lower tax rate. I see. Okay. From, from a reporting standpoint, it's a fully consolidated subsidiary. So everything that we report always has, you know, 100% of the whole consolidated entity. We operate it as one business. Um, so day-to-day -day operations, we just think about it as, as one operating entity. Yeah. Okay. And and how has uh, Mr. Maxwell's percentage of or stake in the 
uh, LLC changed over time? Is it sort of maintained that, did you say, 64% interest in, in the LLC? When we originally took it public, he retained 78%. Uh, the public owned 22%. You know, he's done a number of small transactions, uh, one secondary offering. Today, he owns 62% and the public owns 38%. Okay. So he's always retained a majority. Yeah. And what are his plans? Just curious. I'm a, you know, if he's a big shareholder, then he obviously has a very vested interest in making sure that the company does well. But I'm just kind of curious what his plans are longer term. Is he is he going to gradually sell down part or at least allow further dilution in his ownership? So I can't speak definitively for what he intends to do over time. What I will tell you is, uh, as I said earlier, he is an entrepreneur. He's got a half a dozen other businesses other than Spark, all in the energy business, although not directly related to what we do at Spark. They're all in various stages of growth. Some are pre-cash flow, some are post-cash flow. Uh, So it wouldn't surprise me if he elected to redeploy some capital at some point down the road. He's had an incredibly good run with Spark over the last 18 years. And uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if he decides he wants to reallocate. I'm not sure what that looks like. That may look like him selling down. I know he does not have any desire to be a, a small shareholder in the public company. Uh, I think if he stays in, he would like to have a significant portion of the ownership. Yeah. So could you talk about your asset portfolio? What What assets does Spark Energy own? So our primary assets are really employees, customer contracts, licenses, and then the systems in order to operate the business. It's a very asset light business. All of my assets are primarily working capital type assets. We work with third-party vendors on the sales side. Uh, we buy wholesale energy from wholesale counterparties, and we use third-party, third-party vendors for some of our customer care. Uh, and billing operations. So it's a relatively asset-like business. Uh, We've got 170 employees approximately supporting over a million customers. Wow. Could you talk about the markets that you're in? So you're a retail electricity and natural gas provider. And so did you start out in Texas and then you grew from there or? Started Started in gas originally in 99. Got into Texas in 2001. And then from 2001, we've been adding one or two states a year. Uh, Not every state is deregulated in the U.S. So we're currently in 19 different states. And what I would tell you is we're in all of the deregulated states that we want to be in today. The the one possible exception could be Georgia, um, which has a very healthy gas market. We're not in there. But otherwise, all of the states that have good regulatory environments uh, for competitive retailers we're currently in. Uh, we're behind 94 different utilities. There are a few utilities within our 19-state footprint that we could expand into, uh, but broader market expansion is not a critical piece of our growth strategy going forward. Yeah, and I would love to talk or hear more about your strategy going forward, but just to get a better sense for not only the markets that you're in, but market structure, could you describe, um, how, how would you characterize the retail market or just the retail space in general and who are the big players? So so you have the Texas market or ERCOT uh, and then you have everything else and they kind of operate differently. So in Texas, uh, when Texas deregulated, they created a pricing mechanism uh, that would 
would create these artificially high prices for a period of four years to incentivize customers to leave and switch to a competitive supplier. Since 2006, there has been no form of regulated price in the market. Every retailer bills their own customer, has flexibility in how they price their products, and also collects the transmission distribution charges from the end-use consumer and turns around or remits it to the poles and wires company. So in Texas, every retailer owns the relationship, the monthly billing relationship with the end-use consumer. In virtually all of the other markets that we operate in, there is still an incumbent utility with a regulated rate. So rather than thinking of our competition as all the other small retailers in a particular market, we position ourselves against that incumbent utility. And the reason is in the majority of these states, the incumbent utility still has more than half of the customers. And that, and that is on a regulated rate. So a lot of times when we're going out with sales campaigns, we're positioning it as either a savings or a stability or, or some message relative to that incumbent utility. The utility still bills in those markets. It's a, it's a utility consolidated bill. We submit our rate information or our, our data to the utility. It goes on their bill. They bill, they collect. In most cases, they take the customer receivables risk and they turn around and remit to us our portion of that bill. So in more than two thirds of our revenue, I don't have end use consumer credit risk. I've got, theoretically, I've got credit risk from an investment grade utility. Uh, so that's a real positive from, from that standpoint. If you'd like to continue listening to this interview, you'll need to become a member. To become a member, visit the website at thestockpodcast.com. Members have access to all full-length episodes. So go to the website, thestockpodcast.com, and click membership at the top. And with that, take care and good luck with your portfolio.